The single biggest blocker to innovation is called the imposter syndrome. It's the feeling that you don't really know what you're doing, and it's just a matter of time before you're found out and exposed as a fraud. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by JVentures, a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley and is sponsored by Leumitech, Hippo Insurance, Turing, Upwest Labs, and Hillel at Stanford. Episode 300, can you believe it is 300th episode for 20-Minute Leaders? Our guest is Olivia Fox Cabane, co-founder of Kind Earth Tech and author of The Charisma Myth and two other books. Olivia has taught leadership, innovation, genius, and charisma at Harvard, Yale, MIT, and the United Nations. She's the co-founder of Kind Earth Tech and former director of innovative leadership for Stanford's Startup Accelerator, as well as the best-selling author and keynote speaker for Fortune 500 companies. Olivia's first book, The Charisma Myth, published by Penguin Random House, went into second printing before it even launched. Her books have been translated into 32 languages, including Mongolian. She's currently writing The Genius Myth, how anyone can learn to access their inner Einstein. Olivia Fox, thank you for joining my show. How are you today? It's a pleasure. I'm well, thank you. It's raining outside, but I've got nine chickens who are running around and having a lot of fun. So life is good. I, I love that. Well, I have to I have to hear a little bit about the setting that you're at in in a second. but but first, you know, your background is just so I- incredibly impressive and and I'm just so in touch with so many of the things that that you've done, besides the fact that you're a, re- a renowned lecturer at so many different wonderful universities and you're the director of innovation leadership at, at StartX that I had the pleasure of visiting quite a few times with my at uh, my time at Stanford. I believe that you have te- been teaching a course at UC Berkeley Business School that you actually had to have people stand and and guard <laughs> off. from students from entering because it was overfilled uh, but really your your passion for curiosity for innovation for charisma is, is just incredible as well as your work with alternative protein uh, so I don't even know where to get started Olivia can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you do so many things sure I think the the most interesting thing for me these days is that I only recently like in the last year or two learned that turns out I've got Asperger's which the day I discovered I Yeah. So when I heard that, I was like, fuck, if only I'd known this 40 years ago, because growing up in Paris, what you've got to understand is um, there are implicit cultures like France, where things are often not said and your ability to understand the subtleties is critical. And then you've got very explicit cultures like Germany. And so for uh, an Aspie to grow up not just in France, but in Paris, is pretty much the worst confluence you can imagine. I imagine only Japan would be worse. So anyway, <laughs> uh, childhood sucked as far as my environment went. Um, my father is, if you think I'm impressive, my dad's not just an authority in everything from fluid dynamics to particle acceleration. He also reads ancient Greek, speaks fluent German. I grew up with that, right? So... It was clear to me I was never going to go into science because there's no way I could step into my father's shoes. And um, what I like doing, though, what my dad gave me was the analytical mind. What my mom gave me was curiosity about humans. And I like taking things apart and seeing how they work. So that's why I started with charisma, because um, when I was around 18, I decided, all right, I got two choices. Either I exile myself on a desert island, or um, I learn how to make this whole human thing work. So I chose option two. Um, I'm still keeping option one open, but <laughs> I realized that 
I had to figure this out. And so charisma was this magical thing that everyone said you had or you didn't. I was like, yeah, right. And so I took it apart, figured out how it worked, explained it to the world, published a book, moved on, which is why when people- Wait, 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 wait. I, I, I'm, stuck on, I'm stuck on that point. I want, I want charisma. <laughs> I want, what, what, what is the secret sauce? So I'm guessing it's not, it's not nature, it's nurture, but how, how does it actually work? Listen, it's the same thing that I'll say later about genius. Uh, not everyone can be Bill Clinton's charisma. Not everyone can be Albert Einstein's genius. However, we all have the capacity to increase our charisma or our genius quotient quite effectively. The only difference is like people who are natural, like Clinton, they can't explain how they do the things they do because they learned that through both natural predisposition and also usually for mimicry in their first three, four, five years of life. So by the time you see them at their full height of charisma when they're in their 20s, um, it seems like it's innate. It's not. So charisma really is three pillars. Um, that's the one thing I'm still willing to say publicly is the model of charisma, which seems now to have been adopted by most, most people, presence, power, and warmth. I'm happy to talk a bit more about that. However, please stop buying the book. It's more, I'm serious. It's more than 10 years old. It shouldn't be the Bible in the field. Someone else should have written a better book by now. So some of the science has to be incorrect by now. It was 20, 2011 when I wrote that book. Probably wow. the only okay. to, Yeah, so don't buy the charisma, please. man. Sorry, go ahead. I want to hear about the charisma. How does it actually work? That, dumb it down for me. How does how do those three pillars make up for me to to have better charisma in the in you know tomorrow and the next and the next day? All right. So you're Israeli, so you probably don't have a problem with the concept of evolution, right? You're okay with that? Hopefully, yes. Okay. Hey, you laugh, but in sessions in like the middle of Idaho, when I've said that, people are like, "No, we're not." And I was like, "Oh fuck, what do I say next?" So. Presence, power, and warmth really does go back to evolutionary psychology. Um, it really is a way for us to guess, because that's what humans are doing when they meet one another. We don't have the time to check out uh, someone's bank account, for example. So we infer, we deduce from the signs of their wealth. Same thing with intelligence, same thing with everything else. Presence. Why is presence important? What we want to see is someone else. What makes them charismatic? is if that person knows what they what we want and need, wants to give it to us and has the power to do so. Those are the three components that, of course, would have given us an advantage in terms of survival to be able to right. spot that in someone else, right? So presence is really simple. It's, is that person aware of what I want and need? Now, that's the subconscious. In the conscious, all we see is is that person literally um, psychologically, emotionally, and physically present in the moment? It's, it sounds simple. It's not easy. So favorite exercise there is whenever you feel yourself wondering during a conversation, focus on your toes. Just feel the physical sensation in your toes because that forces your brain to scan your whole body from head to, of course, toe. And that brings you back physically in the moment. That's wow. a quick... Yeah, the long fix, which you're probably going to hate it. Sorry, it's a bitch. This is the only way. Meditation retreats. And oh, wow. For, yeah, um, for reasons <laughs> that should be quite obvious, uh, most of the meditation teachers in the US are Jewish. 
One of the reasons for that is, of course, that unlike Catholic, I'm going to be so politically incorrect. Sorry. Um, unlike Catholicism, where uh, you have to believe the priest, representative of God, or even Protestantism, where you have to believe the Bible, go back to the word. In Judaism, the way you impress the rabbi is by asking a question that he doesn't have an easy answer to, right? Right, right. So the value of questioning, the value of curiosity is so entrenched in Judaism. Well, first of all, it's one of the reasons where 0.2% of the population, 20% of the Nobel Prize winners, sorry. Right, it's a fact. right. Um, but two, that's one of the reasons there's such affinity. Um, Jubus are named that way for a reason. It, it really is, whether it's in animal welfare or in uh, meditation, the proportion of Jews is off the charts. Right, so, and actually, I do have to say a, a tiny anecdote. Just the other day, I was talking to a, a, a Haredi Jew here in Israel that is leading in the technology hub for the Haredi Jews, which is, you know, very absurd just to say that sentence, and even yeah. even in 2021. But what we do see is that when Haredi Orthodox Jews that even have never touched a computer in their life, they decide they want to learn how to program at 30 years old. It's that question. It's that you know a quest for for questioning and that curiosity that they pick up the book, they teach themselves to code basically overnight, and they become a fantastic thinkers and learners, yeah. but but yeah. that but that's just something that I'm learning. So please go ahead. Yeah, there, there's that. There's also um, my uh, my co-author, Judah Pollack, who is, um, I was going to say, who's obviously Jewish also, but who is Jewish, who you should interview. He's bloody brilliant. I once asked him, why is it that we're such a ridiculous proportion of Nobel Prize winners, of inventors, etc.? His theory is this. One is this encouragement of curiosity, the worshiping of knowledge, which we have in common with um, so many of my friends are either Indian, Jewish, or both. In India, you have the same worship for knowledge. But then the other thing we have is we've always been the outsiders for 5,000 bloody years. And it's usually as an outsider that you see the most interesting things. Right. Uh, my dad always says that the, the great discoveries now are not going to be done within the disciplines because those have been done. The great discoveries are yes. going to be done, right in the liminal spaces, the, the spaces in between fields at the cross section. And right. that's OK. You know about the, the study where um, the labs that published the most were the ones that were the furthest from the water cooler? <laughs> no, I don't. So that's because the people would have to pass by the most offices and therefore they would encounter, bump into the most people from the most wow. different fields. Yeah. Um, when we talk about genius, that's actually how our brain works. You genuinely have a genius engine. Like I could point to it in your brain, uh, composed, it's a network composed of different components. And the reason that those labs published the most and had the most interesting findings is because that physical, structural, like brick and mortar setup is the same setup by which your genius engine works in your brain. Wow. Uh, sorry. So back to charisma. Um, so what we're looking at is presence, being physically present in the moment. Now, if you're going to bitch about a week-long meditation retreat, let me tell you one thing. My, my teacher, um, Rabbi David Cooper, who passed away recently, he, um, he once told me about what he'd asked for his 60th birthday present. And it was a, what's called a dark retreat. And a dark retreat, you are in a room with no outside stimuli, no light, no sound, no nothing. Your, your food is delivered by a special chute, so not one photon of light comes in. 
And he said it was really interesting about after about two days, he started getting hallucinations and, you know, fields of gold and fascinating things. And so I'm like, so how long did you stay in there? And I was expecting him to tell me, I don't know, four days. And he was like, oh, a couple of weeks. What? Yes. So before you bitch about your seven-day retreat, think about the people who are spending months or even years in silent retreats. I'm feeling really, really bad right now because I tried to do Headspace and after about 15 minutes, I start wandering off and and I I, I feel angry that I have to get back to real life. So I think I have some practice to do here. You do, but that's the other thing that every meditation teacher will tell you is that the work of meditation is not being able to stay present. The work of meditation is coming back to presence every time you wander. Right. Now, eventually... I'm kind of hesitant about saying this because what I'm about to say really fucked up my meditation uh, journey for uh, almost a decade. I'm ready. Okay, don't get competitive about this, but <laughs> but there are what's called jhanas, um, usually spelled in English J H A N A, though of course it's a translation of Pali, the language of the Buddha. So who knows what it should be spelled as. But there are jhanas, these different stages that you go through in meditation. I've heard it described by people who have, were previously drug addicts and are now meditators as it's like the best high you could ever get, but without the drugs, except with a lot more work. So I've experienced jhana one through three. Um, it's pretty wild. In jhana one, wow. it's just you drop below the mind. It's like you really go, can almost feel the mind. It's like waves on the surface. Um, in, in jhana two and three, I had moments where I was fusing into time. There's no better way to explain it. Now, I didn't go further, but in jhana five, six, seven, and eight, people describe systematically the same experiences, but they really sound like they're high out of their minds on something. So try to, now that I said this, try to ignore all of this because the, the, the best way to really screw up your meditation pro- progression is to, uh, is to see it as a, a linear progress, which it will never be. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, that being said, uh, my favorite retreat ever was, of course, a Buddhist retreat um, held in a Catholic convent led by two rabbis who don't believe in God. It was bloody fabulous. <laughs> I can't um, even imagine. It was fabulous. The one, um, the one meditator I would recommend is a dear friend. Um, his name is Shaden Meng Tan. He was known as Google's Jolly Good Fellow. He set up the Search Inside Yourself happiness program at Google. And he's got a 15-second uh, meditation tool that's a great way into meditation. Unbelievable. Okay, so, so my homework out of this is... is- basically to start meditating. And I think that one of the things that I've been uh, struggling with, and I think that I can speak for my friends as well, is that we do see it as a linear uh, progression, right? We're trained from youth to think that, you know, if we practice something, then every time we'll get 1% better, right? That's how we form the 1% every day. And now you're telling me, okay, maybe it's right for 99% of things, but not necessarily for meditation. It sucks. I'm sorry. You're going to have to accept that it won't be a linear progression. And again, for someone with Asperger's, it really is frustrating because I like, you know, being able to see how they work. Anyway, that's just presence. Um, and when you hear about like the Dalai Lama or, or even Colin Powell, they'll tell you that they just had such presence. It literally just means that the ability to be present in the moment. Now, for guys, 
the other thing that you need to realize with male identifying people is it's not just intellectual presence. Sorry, it's emotional presence. Right. In meditation, most of us, those who are comfortable with a nice, dry cognitive work of the mind, we're going to gravitate towards insight meditation, the pasana meditation. And that's great, but that's a cop-out. The real hmm. tough work that people like you and me need to do is the awkward, messy, uncomfortable work of the heart. And that's metta meditation, M-E-T-T-A, loving kindness. Now, metta's a bitch. I hate it. It's really, really <laughs> awful. That being said, it's good for me. And in the same way that, you know, like when I cop out on yoga, I go to the gym, you see what I mean? Because it's easier and right. in mental sense, it's the same way. When I when I wimp out on metta, I do vipassana, but I know I'm wimping out because uh-huh. where the mind is a nice, safe, you know, understandable space for me. The heart's a bloody mess, but metta will change you in a way that vipassana won't for people like wow. you and me. Okay. Olivia, I, I'm learning so much, but I, I have to pick your brain on, on innovation as well, because you've held numerous roles on innovation, uh, also with, with Stardex, the, the Stanford Accelerator. So talk to me a little bit about how all of this charisma, geniosity, innovation plays into leadership within you know organizations, uh, startups, as a founder, mm-hmm. as, a, as an entrepreneur. How does mm-hmm. it all come together? So charisma is a tool. It's just like a knife. A knife can be used to hurt or to help. Charisma is neither good nor bad per se. If you're going in the right direction, it'll get you faster. In the wrong direction, it'll get you faster. It's just a language like any other. It is, of course, an incredibly powerful tool, and it's a bigger motivator than anything except money, and even in many cases, more than money. Steve Jobs is an excellent example Um, If you send me an email after, remind me, I actually did a decoding of Jobs learning charisma step-by-step from 1982 to his death. And you can see, yeah, in videos, you can see him step-by-step learning presence and power and warmth. You need all three of these for charisma. The only thing that changes is what kind of charisma you get depending on the order in which these three elements are present in you. So Steve Jobs did have warmth. It's just, it wasn't directed towards people. It was directed towards a vision. That's when you get visionary charisma. The Dalai Lama, his work is absolutely directed towards humans. That's when you get the kind of, the Dalai Lama's kind of warmth charisma. Um, How that plays in innovation is that, of course, charisma helps you motivate people and free their minds. Now, I need to mention one thing. The single biggest blocker to innovation is called the imposter syndrome. It's the feeling that you don't really know what you're doing, and it's just a matter of time before you're found out and exposed as a fraud. Now, it's not just that last time they counted, about 78% of the adult population had experienced this at one time or another. It's the higher up the ladder of education you go, the worse it gets. Interesting. Yeah. One of the MIT deans told me decades ago, we lose more kids to the imposter syndrome than to any other cause. Now, my theory is that this is because the more you know, the more you're aware of the sum total of knowledge and how small your own is in comparison, right? Wow. As a leader... I never thought of it that way. Yep. As a leader in a startup, the, one of the biggest, the two biggest jobs you have is destigmatizing, i.e. lifting the stigma of shame off the experience of the imposter syndrome and the experience of failure. So with failure, you know about the five stages of grief, right? You go through denial, right. uh, bargaining, et cetera. 
Well, guess what? With failure, we go through the exact same processes. You're humming along and failure happens. First step is denial. Shit, this can't have happened. Second step, bargaining. Maybe if we tweak this or that, it won't have happened. Third step, anger. Whose fault is this? How the fuck can this have happened? And then you go through sadness, resignation, et cetera. You can't skip this process. The only way to go through it faster is to not fight it. If you try to fight the anger or the sadness, you're just going to get stuck. So as a leader, as an entrepreneur, you need to make peace with this process when you go through failure and teach your team how to make peace with this process too. Because only when you have fully accepted the anger, the bargaining, the sadness, the resignation, will you be able to actually do a good post modem and then learn what you need to learn. That makes Olivia, sense. Olivia, I... I think we need to do five more episodes because I, I feel like we, we, didn't, we didn't even scratch the iceberg and, and, and it annoys me. It really, really annoys me and because I, I have to stick to the format, which is 20 minutes long yes, and, and yes. It, went, it went by way too fast. So, so Olivia, thank you for sharing with me your insight. I, I have much more insight that I need to take out of you, but, but we'll do that another time. But for now, I, I need your three words that you would use to describe yourself. Yeah, um, I'd say passionate is probably the number one. Um, the number two would probably be analytical. Um, and the number three, now that I understand it, and it is such a part of me, and my God, I wish I'd known this when I was born, was Asperger's, loudly and proudly. Seriously, if I had known what it was, it would have made my life so much easier. And I could have taken advantage of all the facets of Asperger's that are a real asset. So there you go. Olivia, thank you for the inspiration. Best of luck with the new book, The Genius Myth. I know that you're on sabbatical writing it, so I truly appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. And, and I can't wait to read that and the other books and share this with everybody because it was just fascinating. Thank you. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>